Job ready? Employer says yes. This programme is presented by Eduvate, education and innovation. Today I met up with John Edward, who is Director of the Scottish Council of Independent Schools. We discussed a wide range of issues around education and employability. His unique position in the education system makes for some fascinating insights for young people around the world. Good morning, John. Good morning. John, what's an independent school? Basically, any school that's not under local government control. So it's effectively autonomous, run by a board of governors, board of charity trustees. We have a school run by the British Army. We have uh, about a dozen schools run by charities like the National Autistic Society, Capability Scotland. So anything that's run separately, autonomously for one purpose or another. And do people pay fees at every independent school? Not everyone. I mean, most we have 75 schools of membership, of which 50 are traditional mainstream fee-paying schools. The other rest of them are behavioural, emotional, social needs schools. Some of them the parents will pay, some of them the local authority or the government will pay. But then, of course, at our mainstream schools, there are now hundreds, if not thousands, of pupils who don't pay fees themselves because part of the purpose of the schools is to offer education to those that can't afford it. So why do they need a council? Because... If you think every local authority school will have its local authority behind it, and that includes HR advice, child protection advice, uh, payroll advice, lobbying to government, lobbying to the local authorities organisation, and just general representation. So we do roughly a similar role for the sector. We do training staff from everything from leadership and headship to medical issues to classics to ICT We do uh, representation with the government on key issues like anti-bullying policy or um, lead in water pipes or the curriculum or general teaching council. Uh, We also explain to parents coming into the sector, usually for the first time, from home or abroad, how the sector works, what kind of school are you looking for, are you looking for financial assistance, so a little bit of signposting through the system as well. So we're basically their umbrella body, their trainer, and to a certain extent their lobbyist as well, I guess. So the perception that uh, independent schools are just for posh kids, that's not right? No, I mean, I'm not sure it was ever really right, but it's it's certainly increasingly less, decreasingly so, um, in the last 10, 12 years. Scotland is unique in that it has a charity regulator who set a test for the independent schools and only the independent schools saying if you seek to uh, retain your charitable status, which some of them had, you know, since the original ideas of their founder in the 17th century, then you have to do something to demonstrate the public benefit you provide for getting that. And in their case, that's apart from all the facilities, sharing of teachers, sharing of subject teaching, um, all sorts of careers provision and other things. The core of that is means tested fee assistance. So something like 30 to 40 million pounds a year from parental income into the schools goes out to other people in terms of uh, you know, allowing them to come to school for nothing or at least to push them over the, 
the barrier to enable them. So what sort of percentage of the school population are in independent schools? Oh, I mean, in the school population in Scotland overall, we're somewhere between 4 and 5%. It's a small sector. It's, I sometimes wonder why we get talked about or talked of so much, given we're so small. So it's a small but high-profile sector. Um, and is that a smaller sector of Scotland than it would be, say, in the US in independent schools? US, it's slightly different because there's so many different varieties of what qualifies as an independent school. There's yes. enormous amounts of faith schools who have slightly different statuses. There are probably fewer of the percentage of the kind of traditional mainstream schools that we have. And of course, the, the, that move from school to high school is a slightly different thing for them as well, where philanthropy really takes off. It's a smaller percentage than you'd get, for instance, in England, in England and Wales. So you have, from your position, which is quite carefully crafted, a unique perception of what we call Generation Z. Mm. That is, those students who have been born at a time when the internet was there, they have never known a time when there wasn't the internet. So from your vantage point, how do you see Generation Z? Are they different markedly from other generations? I don't think so at all, actually. Um, which may be a... a I mean, I, I, th I think this generation, education-wise, is probably the most challenging and challenged generation we've... in, in modern times. Because the, every assumption, every reassurance on which the education system built is being challenged in all sorts of ways uh, in terms of globalization in terms of access to information in terms of use of uh, technology in terms of what qualifies as a teacher what qualifies as a pupil and um, what qualifies as a school but actually the core responsibility of educators and the core responsibility of learners is exactly the same and interestingly you see it with our schools they will be very, very wedded to a particular ethos and philosophy and set of principles that have guided them for decades, if not centuries. Um, but because of their autonomy, they actually quite find it relatively easy to adapt to whatever new challenges come along. The problem sometimes is getting the grade one listed building to adapt to how you now want to teach. Um, you know, when I went to school here in Edinburgh, there were still schools that had, you know, rotating blackboards and you could write on the walls and all sorts of things and it was all chalk. Now, every single one of those buildings is still being taught in, but they're being taught in with whiteboards, they're being taught in, in facilities that have to allow for people with uh, uh, visual impairments, with hearing impairments, with physical impairments, all sorts of people who traditionally would have been taken out of mainstream education and put somewhere else. They're all part of education now. Um, a huge amount of people who don't have English as their first language, and this must be the first generation that schools have really had to deal with that um, in, a, in an all-encompassing way. Uh, never mind how pupils learn. Yeah, you know, my daughter is a 14-year-old at school here in Edinburgh. Her homework's entirely done virtually. I don't see any jotters or any, any homework books um, in the course of the week. It's Talk all. about that a bit. It, does that make them different? Do they have a different skill set uh, than, than we did? Or is the virtualness just a replication of what we did, only it's online? I, I think it's, it's mainly a replication. I mean, the big difference is, and for people 
of every generation preceding, the generation that is coming through always baffles them. And I think my generation is baffled by the lack of pens and paper and books. They find that disturbing and troubling because that's what they were taught to do. You must read and the manifestation of reading is to hold a book in front of you. You must be able to write neatly, all these sorts of things. None of those skills have been lost. We just can't quite tell at what stage people are using them because they are reading and writing in a different way. They're accumulating information in an entirely different way and they're putting it down in a different way. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, my, so my daughter will, will be given homework. She will, um, it will be sent to her on Firefly. She will check it on her school iPad when she gets home. She will complete it on her school iPad. And so it will be back in the hands of the teacher before midnight of the night that she does it. Which is all whizzy and wonderful, but does not, not make them different people. It, do, it does. Their, their skills will be different. But then I'm not entirely convinced that the skills I developed at school and at university of being able to write longhand for four hours are skills I ever needed before or since. Accepted. Do you think that when we were at school there was a lot of collaboration in terms of preparing work and preparing uh, materials just to be read out or for uh, the school itself in, in an examination sense. And the internet allows that kind of collaboration times 10 mm. because there are all sorts of opportunities to work in chat rooms or, or whatever. Are the independent schools taking advantage of that kind of learning? Yeah, I think they found it easier, actually, in a way than the state system. In Scotland, they were very advanced and tried to set up a system called GLOW, which was the national online learning environment for local authority schools. But inevitably, if you try to create a system across 32 local authorities that's government-run and so on, it, it has the danger of being a bit clunky. The joy of being autonomous is you can do your own thing. You can go to the market, you can use some aspects of Google, you can use some aspects of other education providers and, and build up your own virtual learning environment to your own uh, specifications. And that's what most of them have done. But yes, you have that level of cooperation which you never had before. So you, instead of sitting in a room and saying, you know, what do you think the impacts of climate change might be on the people of sub-Saharan Africa? You go, well, why don't we ask the people of sub-Saharan Africa? And here they are. You know, what's it like to live in this kind of uh, temperate zone? What's it like to work like this? You don't need to have the old boys and old girls coming in from law offices and accountants to tell you, this is how I got my job and this is what I do, because they can phone in from Johannesburg or from Rio and say, I went to your school, but look what I'm doing now. So the, so the access to, to how they, I think the skills they learn, I mean, they, they are expressed in different ways, but the skills they learn are entirely the same, I suppose the real core for this generation is communication. It's not accumulation of knowledge because there's, you've got past the point of where do we find the knowledge? There's the, not, the assumptions of yeah. knowledge. If, you know, my, my children don't need to be told how to find the answer to something because they have it in 10 seconds. The question is, what do you do with it? How do you process it? And then how do you communicate it on? And I think what I find most impressive of this generation is, there, is that for them, communication skills and the understanding of how the, who they are and how they present themselves is almost a given. So there's a spectrum of perception then. On the one hand, there's a perception of Generation Z as, as grunting, uh, unable to communicate, 
unable to walk down the road without clutching a phone, <laughs> and on the other end, there's what you're there's yeah. what you're seeing. Do you think that the independent schools are better at what you're seeing than than other people? Well, I think without being too subjective, I think they, it's easier for them to guide children, and 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 there is guidance. I mean, um, our schools are very modern, but there's the important thing about an independent school is that the parents sign a contract with the school when their children join. So there is a tripartite agreement, very explicitly, between the child as the learner, the parents as the supporters, and the school as the provider. And everybody has to meet their part of the bargain. That includes scrutiny of homework, that includes conduct, that includes deportment, that includes general attitudes and manners and customs, as well as your willingness to learn and your willingness to be challenged. And I think... If you have schools reinforcing that and you know the importance of certain aspects, whether it's as basic as civility or it's more sophisticated than that, while at the same time parents keeping a weather eye on children who can be led astray now through virtual learning as they could through other means in the past, um, it's, it is easier for schools to control because they put it within a, a broader ethos of the school. This is who we are. This is how we learn. Um, and yes, I think it's it's very easy for them to to convert those traditional values into something that supports the way children learn today. So their kids come out of school, they make a, a decision to go to university or not. I would guess that from independent schools, more would prefer to go to university than not, but it would depend on, on the schools uh, and so on. Uh, and then they emerge into a world which is Industry 4.0. It is a world where AI, where robotics are going to replace some of the jobs that they thought they might want to do, perhaps have even trained in a roundabout way to do, and so on. How prepared are these students for that eventuality? I suppose the aim of any school is to be make them as prepared as possible. Nobody can walk out of the school gates these days and say, I'm ready, I know what's coming. Unless, maybe, maybe if you worked in one of the old professions, but even a dentist couldn't say with confidence that dentistry will look like it looks like now in 10, 15, 20 years' time, never mind 40. So... You can't say for certain, I know what's coming, but you can say, I'm confident enough, and this is not a, this is not a, a cockiness, it's a confident enough that I have enough tools in the bag and enough humility to know where my gaps are that I will fit in. Every message they get now, which is a message I never got in 14 years of school, is the job you, may, you end up doing may not exist yet. That's a completely alien concept to me. My worry was... Everybody else knows what they want to do and is going to go and do it. I just don't have that particular feeling. Now they're being told it doesn't matter if you know what you want to do. It might not be a job in 10 years' time. Um, so and the fact that you don't know what you want to do might be a good thing. Yeah, so, so, so in, all you've got to do in that respect is build a resilience so that people understand that the, the approach they have as they go through life, going from their lever destination on to whatever, whatever comes next, is not doesn't somehow define them. Oh, I didn't get into the university course I wanted to do. I didn't get the job I wanted. You know, that, that is going to be, it's not a struggle, but that is going to be the search you are on now permanently, I think, for your professional life, rather than, whew, I've got through the difficult bit, which is getting a job, 
end of, and I leave it there. Um, I, and, and that's where you have to focus on communication skills, resilience skills, men, not mental toughness, but mental awareness. I think it's amazing the, the importance that's moved in our schools and across the board as well in the eight years I've been here on mental resilience, well-being, the willingness to understand what defeat looks like. One of our well-known boarding schools here in Edinburgh has a failure week every week, every year. Really? And they have, they get speakers in from the head and the senior staff downwards to, to famous parents and alumni and pupils to, to talk about things they got wrong. In some cases, badly wrong. And it's a brilliant idea to yeah. get people, you can have as many you know, globally successful people at speech day saying, oh, it's wonderful and we've all done terribly well, haven't we? But to tell say to somebody, I got this wrong. And look, I'm still here. You know, I'm fine. I maybe didn't quite go where I thought I was going to go, but I've gone somewhere else. And it just to build up that sense of flexibility in yourself that, yeah, okay, you may train as one thing, but you may end up doing another. And and in that, you you build a core set of skills the ability to use whatever technology is in front of you, and that ch that's changing so fast that it's almost impossible to keep up with. But also the ability to communicate in a way that people uh, empathise with and people understand. Which, and you know, modern languages are an example of that. You know, we have to start talking about modern languages as international communication rather than a subject you do like chemistry. Here, here. So, is there a sense in which? you agree with a number of companies who are saying, if these are the sort of students that are coming out of high school, why bother to go to university? We don't need all that now. Come into our company, work with us. The jobs might change over the years, but you've shown you've got the resilience. The university is not going to help you with that. I think there's an, a strong element of truth. I mean, there probably always was. It just took a particularly brave young person to go, right, that's what I'm going to do. Because since the sort of notion of an apprenticeship died, it's, it's re being reborn at the moment. But the idea of serving a, an apprenticeship effectively died out. Um, the idea that you would do anything other than go straight to university, certainly in the independent sector, is almost, was almost anathema. Still 90% of our school leavers will go straight to university. There is an increasing number who will go to college instead and take that more vocational route. But those who actually say, you know what, I'm going to do something entirely different are still rare. But I think what will change that more than ending in the years to come is not the approach of schools, but the approach of higher ed further education. Because I think the status of higher education in Scotland and in the rest of the United Kingdom is unsustainable at the moment. The way it's funded, the way it operates, the way it seeks pupils, the way it requires pupils to set a certain amount of exams at one time and present those results in one year and that's the only chance to get in. I think that's unsustainable if you're ask, also asking those people to pay money to come in. Um, I think, and I also think the funding arrangements in Scotland are unsustainable. So I think higher education will have to change. The ludicrous situation of pupils in schools in Scotland not doing advanced higher, which is a much more personal learning mm. subject, um, because universities don't like it as much as like higher. So they stay on for the last year when they're supposed to be doing that personal learning and do another set of hires. So they leave school with 10 hires. Um, it's, yeah, it's a crazy system. Um, so that, will, that I think will change. But I'd love to see more pupils going and more companies saying, no, we can provide what the university can provide you. you know, we can provide you with the space, 
to develop because people always forget that people weren't developed at 1718. Yeah, I don't think I was, you know, intellectually or probably even emotionally developed until I was about 25. If I'm now, I don't know. Um, so the idea that somehow that's that's when it finishes and then you're working from then on, rough, I think people are much more attuned to the idea that it is genuinely lifelong learning. And, you know, whatever I do next at the age of 49, 50 will require as much uh, reapplication and changing as, as I did when I left university 30 years ago. A life full of transition. So to conclude this uh, fascinating interview, and um, again from your unique standpoint, we know from what you've been saying that the toughness of students is going to be something that they're going to need to present to employers to show that they're able to cope with what's going on in the future. What's the worst thing a student could do when presenting themselves for work? Overplay themselves. It's, 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 it's the age-old thing. I mean, British pupils and Scottish pupils have two habits. One lot, and independent schools used to be accused of this, is overplaying themselves. And British people generally were accused of underplaying themselves. It's, it's all about being dishonest in the end. You know, you're feeling... And this is where resilience and, and, and mental resilience come in. If you feel confident enough about who you are, and that may be, I'm confident that I am not a confident person, if you get, if you get me. Um, that's what people want to know. All they want is authenticity in the end. The last thing people want is, is you to come in and say, I think you want me to be like this, therefore I will attempt to be like this and I will probably fail in the process. Because I don't, I've never interviewed anybody in any of the... Now, four jobs I've done where what I wanted is somebody to come in and sound and look like me. That's of no interest to me whatsoever because I'm here already. Um, so what you want is authenticity. And so anybody who's going, well, I'm not sure I could do that, but I'm sure I could try hard, is just as sad a loss as somebody saying, I could do it, don't worry, it'll be fine. You just leave me the keys and it'll all be fine tomorrow. You know, you've got... And, and again, I think, I, think, I think this generation is more... Yes, resilient, but more self-aware than certain. If I look around, all my friends' children, they are all more self-aware than their friends are. So they ask their parents questions about emotions and about abilities and about strengths and weaknesses that they would never dare ask each other, that me and my friends would never talk about. And they would certainly never ask, you know, I would never ask my parents. And now they're asking their grandparents these questions and the look of perplexity. I'm not my grandparents' faces when they're asked these emotional questions by by children of 13, 14, 15, I think is brilliant because they are so much more attuned. It's not, it's not being um, overly self-obsessed or kind of you know, concerned about you know, all, your, your own internal workings, but it's just awareness. And I think self-awareness is is a wonderful thing. People spend way too long trying to be what they think other people want them to be. And then usually the biggest, I think the biggest disappointment for people in adult life is to find out that for too long they've been pretending to be somebody else. We've been talking with John Edward, uh, director at the SCIS. We can truly claim an authentic and insightful experience. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Pleasure. You'll find us online at eduvate.biz. Job ready. Employer says yes. Mm.